I know there's some folks here this morning who are a little bit nervous about what's about to be said uh, because you are getting ready for a Super Bowl party and you're concerned about that strong drink and that unclean foods. So <laughs> you'll be okay. We won't emphasize on that, nor do I think you took the valve and that's right. So we'll go from there. Imagine if you pulled just about any group and you asked them, uh, tell me uh, from the book of Judges, uh, in this group, particularly if it was familiar with the scripture, give me one judge from the book of Judges. And, I say, and I, we asked that question to them and we pulled them on that. Uh, I would imagine that most people would say Samson. Like that would be the figure that they would identify, the one they would remember. Uh, it's a popular and memorable story, uh, Samson's story uh, here in the book of Judges. And as memorable stories go, uh, it has had some Hollywood success uh, with the story itself. There might be some here uh, who are familiar with Cecil B. DeMille's Samson and Delilah. Is anybody familiar with that old film? It is an old film by now. It's from like 1949, 1950 is when it went national. Uh, at the time it was released, so it starred Victor Mature. Does that name sound familiar for some folks? Right? You're going, oh yeah, okay. Uh, Hedy Lamar. Uh, some other folks might remember there's a person in that film, uh, Angela Lansbury, from Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> She's in that film, a much younger version of Angela Lansbury. When it was released in 1950, it was the, it was the top grossing film that year, this, this movie about Samson Delilah. In fact, at that point in history, it was the third top grossing film of all films up until that point. And it was, a nom- it was nominated for five Academy Awards, and it ended up winning two of them. Uh, perhaps... Uh, some of you might be familiar with a lesser-known film from 2018, simply entitled Samson, uh, which stars Taylor James and Caitlin Lehigh. Uh, it also has, uh, I was looking at it this week, it has Billy Zane. I always wonder what happened to Billy Zane after Titanic. Now I know. He's in Samson. Of course, with that kind of popularity, uh, Samson's become the, the butt of several jokes, uh, as you can imagine over the years. Uh, what I might call dad jokes, or actually what I call just jokes. So... Of course, Samson, one of those being Samson being the greatest party thrower of all time, right? Because he brought down the house. Right? Is he, yeah, right? What? Anybody? No, no? Okay. Or he was identified as the greatest journalist because he took two columns and made an impression on everyone. No? No? Okay. Not going with that one? Okay. But the Samson story here is no joke. The story itself is no joke. We can laugh and kid about it and stuff, but it's rather a story here of a champion of his generation whose life ends in tragic triumph. And we see that here in the, we'll see that here in the next two weeks as we look at, at Samson. But even more, the story here speaks of God's love and faithfulness even when God's people come up short. And that story is going to be told over and over. It's a story we've heard throughout uh, the book of Judges, and we'll hear it again here as well. And so, like I said, we'll spend a, a couple weeks with this story. But before there's the big-time Samson, before you had the muscly guy, the really strong person, you got a birth. And we see that here in our pages and in our reading this week. So when you think of miraculous births in our day and age, so think about miracle births and whatnot, oftentimes we accompany that with uh, stories of a challenging, challenging conception or even a difficult birth or a pregnancy. And amongst the members of this congregation, this community, I imagine there's stories like that uh, here in our own group here, let alone in our larger community. I know my own family, we have, we have a story of this sort uh, when it came to Rory. Um, and so it's not uncommon uh, to see that in our day and age for folks to have difficulty 
or challenges presented to him and asking the question, can, can you get pregnant? Can you even carry a child uh, to term? And the Bible, of course, has stories of miraculous births. Uh, accounts where we see people that are like in our own day and age uh, who find themselves at a place where they're not able to have children for one reason or another. They're not able to biologically carry a child. And we see those stories, those miraculous birth accounts and stories like the birth of Isaac and Samuel, John the Baptist, of course, and then Jesus and his own, his own story. And each one of these have their own particular uh, nuances to them. The Jesus story is a little different than the other stories. Uh, but there are all these stories where there's miraculously, miraculous events that surround the births of these people. And it signals a key moment of divine activity. Not just in the pregnancy and birth, but in the life itself that's to follow. So when you hear a story of miraculous birth or the promise of one to come or one who is going to be born when previously the family was not able to have a child, when we read that in Scripture, we expect to hear that something important is going to happen with the life of that person or something is being communicated to us about God and what God is up to. That person is going to make a significant contribution in the life of the world and the story of salvation. And so our text here this morning invites us to consider that about the life of Samson. So before we even get to Samson, before we even get to his birth, we're already being set up to consider how this child, soon to become a man, will make an important contribution to the life of God's people. But miraculous occasions, they remind us of something else. Namely that when a miracle happens, it's oftentimes preceded by a period of incredible difficulty. You don't pray for a miracle when life's going great. You don't hope that something miraculous will happen or that God's intervention will come if you're settled and you're doing well. And so we know that in this story, as we even hear right from the beginning, as we consider this idea of a miraculous birth, we have to know that in this story, if we were to step back into real time, we're looking at a time period in this chapter where incredible difficulty, incredible hardship is being experienced. Look at verse 1. There's our familiar formula. The Israelites did uh, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's that cycle. We've been talking about this cycle all along, right? And there it is. But exactly what evil is here is, is not really spelled out in this text. But if you go back to Judges 10, 6, you actually will see there that some of the background might actually be this following after the gods of the Philistines as we see back in that chapter. So here we have, of course, wayward people resuming their unfaithful path and experiencing the undesirable consequences that follow. That's all familiar. We've heard that in Judges through and through each week as we look at the different accounts. But what we see here in this particular piece that's, that's not counted in those other ones is the people here do not cry out. This text doesn't include a crying out by the people. They're not crying out for deliverance at this point. And a commentator here, Barry Webb, observes that the Philistine dominance over Israel is so complete and the morale of Israel so low that even the hope that Yahweh might save them has been extinguished. There is no strength even to cry out. And so we come to this last judge listed in Scripture and the people are beaten down and they can't possibly cry out at this point they might not even know who to cry out to at this point. They're so far gone. And this is a period of great difficulty. And at this moment, we're introduced to two figures. Two prominent figures in this chapter. One is named, and one is not. 
Well, if you ever wondered what might come of unfaithfulness, read the book of Judges. If you're still wondering what it might mean for God's people to be unfaithful and what could happen, go back and read Deuteronomy chapter uh, 28. It doesn't go well. That's my summary of Deuteronomy. It doesn't go well. And Judges certainly plays that out. In Deuteronomy 28.64, we actually read uh, of one such consequence of unfaithfulness, that the people would be scattered amongst the nations. And the verse following that, in verse 65, we learn the effect of scattering. It says this, it says, Among those nations you'll find no ease, no resting place for the sole of your foot. And the word here for resting place that we have in Deuteronomy, that place you're looking for for rest, it's related to the name of the man that we're introduced to here in Judges. This name Manoah means rest. So you have the one person that's named, his name means rest. And of course, a consequence of failing to heed God's good uh, teaching, his law, essentially is no Manoah, right? No rest. So there's a bit of irony here from this first figure as we enter the text. And it's probably why the author names this person. A man named Rest, who lives amidst a terribly difficult season of unrest, of difficulty. And the difficulty of that season becomes all the more clear from what we learn about this second unnamed figure, who is barren, having born no children. We see that in verse 2. We live, of course, again in an age in which childbearing uh, is identified more and more with choice, where folks say, I'm going to make a choice at, at when it's going to happen or whether or not it's going to happen. And to have children or not, of course, is something in modern times, which there is, there is some choice to that. Um, but here's the thing. I've met so many couples over the years and people that have desired to have a children but couldn't, and they've expressed in their, their longing for that the challenge and difficulty that's there, even though we might see it as choice. So we might, to some extent, understand the ancient at this point. But this, of course, is layered with even more than just personal disappointment. There's cultural disappointment that runs, what I say, deep and wide here, deep within ourselves and wide amongst the community itself. Not bearing a child would be a sign of disgrace amongst the ancients of Israel. And it's in those stares and whispers that you might have from the members of the community uh, would only be half of what one might expect with the challenges here. But why? Why would, they, why, why would they think that way? Well, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. One who couldn't have children at that time would not be able to fulfill that charge. And so you see them being set up a little bit in that, people wondering, well, what's wrong with them? How come they're not able to, to follow in these this footsteps here? Or Genesis 3.15, in which the, the curse narrative, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. You will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. If you're not able to give birth to a child, you'll never give birth to the promised heir who will bring that to be. And so you can imagine how that might heap on top of someone, the, just the absolute difficulty they might be feeling personally, but now as they think about it uh, from theological constructs and cultural expectations that people have, there's great trouble for this couple. They're struggling. They're living a life, again, of unrest and unease. And returning back to Webb here, the storyteller includes this aspect of their life, one, to show us the miraculous, but also to say this, this woman's experience, this family, this couple's experience, mirrors that of Israel as a whole, disgraced and powerless, with nothing to look forward to but extinction, is a scene of utter bleakness. And that's where they find themselves. The story, of course, ended in verse 2. There's not a lot of hope there. 
If that's where this tale ended, we'd be in a lot of trouble. But fortunately for us, the story and the reading doesn't end in verse 2. Instead, it's simply uh, another added upon millions and billions of ordinary people's experiences across this globe. Some unnamed and some named. This is the experience that people face around this world in our communities. But verse 3 reminds us of an answer of one who has been the hero of our series all throughout and how that hero speaks to those stories. It speaks to the identity and the experience that you and me face, that folks outside these doors face, and around this world face. And we see that in two responses. The first one is this, it's the response of God. It's noteworthy here that God's response in this situation of great difficulty and struggle is to lead with good news. That God's first word to this couple are words of good news. Good news for the barren woman. She will conceive and bear a son. That's verse 3. Good news for the nation, as this son will serve as deliverer. You see that in verse 5. At least he will begin to deliver the people from these Philistines. And this boy is to be set apart, to be consecrated for a special purpose according to the vow of the Nazarite. If you really want to geek out on what the vow of the Nazarite is, Numbers chapter 6, go for it. It seems rather mysterious to a modern reader as you read that and go, what, what, <laughs> what? But take a look at what that might entail. But it's all part of a special design that God has here for the life of this coming one, this coming child. So good news for a people in utter bleakness. How much better news in knowing that all this comes without the people crying out for salvation. That God leads with good news regardless of whether or not you cry out for it or not. That God's first word to us is this salvation word when the people are in their darkest place and can't come out of that cave, that God reaches in to pull them out and offers them a sense of light. That God here responds to them, not in the way that they respond to God or to each other, but God provides something altogether different. Clearly, God has their good in mind. Clearly, the good God here is putting out goodness and love and mercy to them and grace. And that's on full display in verse 9 where God listens to Manoah, where God is patient with the couple, more so patient with Manoah, I might add. For some reason, Manoah doesn't seem to get it throughout this entire chapter. But God is patient with all the questions and all the misunderstanding and the missing the point. And their words in verses 22 and through 23 seem to recognize the good that God intends here. The unnamed wife, the unnamed woman here, seems to have understood fully the goodness of God in that moment but of course there's another response and that's the response of the people of both Manoah and his wife in verses 6 and following so let's be honest there's a lot of ways one could respond if a mysterious figure were to show up in your life and suddenly promise you to be have the disgrace of your life removed and for you to be set into a place where you might be a participant in the salvation that God brings you might see God as a leprechaun at that moment right? And think, take me to your pot of gold. You might see God as a genie and say, since you gave me one wish, can I have two more? You could do all kinds of sorts of crazy things that you might dream up. But what we have here is we see in these people something that's quite ordinary. They're plain people. They're common people. Here comes the woman and her husband they simply receive the message. The woman receives the message. She tells her husband. 
Her husband prays, hey, come again. Verse 8, I need to find out exactly what you said. Make sure I got this right. Questions for clarification. We see that. Doesn't seem to recognize the enormity of the one to whom uh, he's being addressed. Doesn't know who this person is. Seems to get it wrong. There's nothing remarkable about any of these folks. And so when we get to the Samson story, we see a powerful individual who's revered and feared by all kinds, but not here. We have ordinary people. We have two nobodies from nowhere. That's what we have. In fact, one's not even going to be named. They're nobodies. They're just ordinary people. But even so, ordinary doesn't mean unfaithful. Ordinary has never meant that. Common people called to an uncommon life is what we see here. And we see that theme over and over throughout the scripture. This life of faithfulness. Not your life of faithfulness, God's faithfulness. And our grateful response to that and their grateful response here as well. And this couple cares enough to get it right. They want to make sure that when God shows up, when God's grace is extended, when salvation is offered, when they're called to be participants in that, they want to get it right. They don't want to mess it up. We might call this in the greater category, God calls them to next-gen ministry. They're being called to the next-gen ministry. And they care enough to ask, how do we do it the right way? How do I hand this message on to the next generation? How do I encourage them to take the right steps? In this case, it was the vow of Nazareth. But what does it mean for us as a people today, as a community? As we look back and we've heard the greatest story of all time in Jesus Christ, that we received God's grace and salvation offered to us freely, what does it mean for us to get it right so that we might teach another generation? You might say, hey, you know what, Jimmy, I'm not, my kids are out of the house now. I don't have to worry about that. Or you might say, I'm not a parent. I don't have children of my own living in the home, so I don't need to worry about that. Here's the thing. There's a next generation. There's our generation, and then there's the next generation. We all have a responsibility as a community. We all have a responsibility to get it right and to pass that on to the next generation. God's people are to ask that question in each and every generation. How do we pass it on right? Well, in conclusion here, I want to I draw our attention to uh, that note of ordinary one more time. Because I think this is one of the great stumbling blocks for us in the American church. And I don't just mean John Knox, I mean the American church, truly the American church. We have a desire to see Christian celebrity. We can't help ourselves. My last, uh, one of my last churches I served in, uh, we, used to, we used to draw on sports figures to come and they would offer, they would basically say what you've been saying all year long. <laughs> They'd say it in 10 minutes, and everybody's like, oh, whoa, now I get it. And you're like, what? <laughs> and so I had a chance to meet a Yankees pitcher at one time, uh, go and run an event where hundreds and hundreds of people showed up uh, to hear Andy Pettit uh, get up there and share uh, a testimony with them and then get his autograph afterwards. We had another guy, I don't remember, he played in the NFL at some point, and he rolled up hand. He literally took a frying pan and he rolled it up. That's a strong grip. If you can roll a frying pan with your hands, that's a strong grip. Now, admittedly, I can't do that. But he would do that and get your attention, and then he would tell a testimony or something. So we had Christian celebrity come through, uh, different sports figures that would come and, and share a story. And maybe you've participated in some of these celebrity things before as well. We've got our own music. We've got our own writers. Uh, we've got all kinds of things within the culture uh, that become our celebrities that we tote out there 
And there seems to be an unwritten desire, but maybe, uh, maybe it's unspoken as well, but it's in our hearts, that somehow the Christian life is meant for me to become bigger and better and badder. Or gooder, I think. One of those two. That we're somehow supposed to grow, 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 grow until we're giants. Giants of virtue, giants of morality, uh, giants of whatever. And we f- quickly find out that we never quite get there. We find ourselves that it's kind of a defeating exercise. And so it's helpful for me to be reminded of a, a man named Manoah and his unnamed wife, who are ordinary people, who are people who experience God's transformative love, that God's presence comes to them when they absolutely needed it most. And they didn't even pray for it, but yet it still came. And that in that moment, that they stepped up in very ordinary ways. They didn't become the giant of a man Samson will become. They simply were his parents. They simply cared for him and raised him. They asked the right questions, and they imparted to him the instruction that God had given him. That's pretty common, ordinary stuff. But yet it makes a tremendous difference. Michael Horton writes in his book, Ordinary, he says, The power of God into salvation is not our passion for God. Again, the power of God unto salvation is not our passion for God, but the passion he has exhibited toward us sinners by sending his own son to redeem us. Again, it's God's faithfulness. Or Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17 who writes, Cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. They shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when relief comes. They shall live in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Jeremiah goes on to say, Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. Shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. Friends, our calling is to be common. If you're a nobody from nowhere, you're called to live a common, ordinary Christian life. And what is that? A life of gratitude, a life that seeks to get it right before the one who has been faithful to us in every generation. May it be so for each one of us today. Amen. Let's pray together.